Welcome back to the OBG Med Student Podcast. This podcast is designed for medical students that are on their OB-GYN clerkship. We walk you guys through cases that are designed by APCO. You can follow along with us at www.apco.org backslash students. Today, we're going to be covering education topic number 54, endometrial hyperplasia and carcinoma. You can also read more about this in chapter 49 of the 8th edition of Beckman and Ling Obstetrics and Gynecology textbook. Today we have quite a treat for you guys. We have Dr. Josh Kesterson with us today. He's our expert in this area. He's a GYN oncologist here at the Hershey Medical Center, Penn State College of Medicine. And I'm just so happy that you can join us. Welcome. Thank you, Dr. Wright, for having me. All right, Dr. Kesterson has covered this uh, topic uh, in the traditional sense in the classroom, but today we're going to present a case to him and ask him some questions, and we'll take it from there. So the, the case, Dr. Kesterson, is a 56-year-old nulligravid woman who's coming into the, the clinic complaining of intermittent vaginal bleeding. She has already been through menopause two years ago. She hasn't had any bleeding uh, until about six months ago when she noticed very light bleeding. Since that time, she's had another three such episodes of note, her past medical history is significant for well-controlled high blood pressure de- depression, um, and she does have poorly controlled diabetes. She never used oral contraceptives um, and was never able to become pregnant. Her family history is non-contributory. On exam, she does have normal vital signs. She does weigh 247 pounds. Her heart, lung, and abdominal exams are otherwise unremarkable. On her pelvic exam, there was normal external genitalia, normal vagina, and cervix. And on bimanual exam, this is actually quite difficult for you because of her body habitus. The uterus does feel slightly enlarged, but there's no adnexal masses palpated. So for the benefit of the students, I just wanted to take a moment to review some basic science and ask you, what is the structure of the endometrium? Yeah, I think that's a good uh, foundational uh, piece there when we talk about uh, the endometrium, uh, specifically the uh, hormonally uh, receptive or hormonally active endometrium. It consists of a simple columnar epithelium with simple tubular glands. And that can be described in two different uh, phases, that being proliferative and secretory. Uh, The proliferative phase uh, involves no crowding of the glands within the stroma in less than 50% ratio of glands to stroma. The secretory may have greater than 50% glands to stroma ratio. The glands are organized, but they're not mitotically active. The endometrium consists of two layers thinking about the deeper layer, that's the stratum basale, and that uh, is a permanent layer that does not shed off uh, during monthly menses. The stratum functionale is the temporary layer that is hormonally responsive at the luminal surface. This uh, responds to hormones, and this is the layer that sheds off during the normal female menstrual cycle. Thank you so much, Dr. Kesserson, for that review. Going back to our case then, what is your differential diagnosis for this patient? Thank you, Dr. Wright. Uh, This is, I think, an informative case because it is a not uncommon presentation in our uh, clinic where we see a person with a similar background, similar age, and similar risk factors. When I think about uh, postmenopausal bleeding, I think about the things that are the most common as well as the things that are the most serious. While endometrial cancer is definitely in our differential diagnosis, thankfully it's not the most uh, common diagnosis we make of a patient in this setting. In fact, most of the time, the diagnosis will be endometrial atrophy. Uh, it can also be a result, or the, I'm sorry, the postmenopausal bleeding can be a result of hormonal therapy. And only about 10 to 15% of time of patients presenting with 
postmenopausal bleeding is the diagnosis actually endometrial cancer. However, secondary to the severity of that diagnosis, it's important to always keep that in mind in order to uh, perform an appropriate workup and diagnosis. Awesome. So what is the ideology of endometrial cancer? Well, when I think about endometrial cancer, I think about two different types. Uh, the most common type being a type 1. Uh, this is a hormonally responsive uh, tumor. And uh, if we think about it in those terms, we think of anything that increases the amount of estrogen relative to progesterone in the body. In the premenopausal women, the main source of estrogen is from the ovaries. Thankfully, there's usually progesterone to counterbalance that. Uh, hence, uh, you have a, a cyclic uh, period with uh, estrogen and progesterone uh, being represented in equal uh, and balancing uh, components. However, uh, when you have an excess of estrogen to progesterone, you run the risk of uh, stimulating the endometrium uh, to a hyperplastic or to a cancer phase. So anything that increases uh, that amount of uh, estrogen that the endometrium is exposed to will be a risk factor. In the postmenopausal woman, this uh, includes uh, excess adipose tissue or obesity. Uh, in the uh, premenopausal uh, woman, we think about uh, uh, obesity uh, as well. We think about patients with polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, whereby you have an excess of estrogen. We also think about things that can stimulate the endometrium uh, being a serum such as tamoxifen where you have an anti-estrogen effect in the breast but a pro-estrogen effect in the endometrium. Other risk factors include a family history. The one we think about most commonly is a Lynch syndrome where patients have an autosomal dominant and inherited risk for endometrial and colon cancer. So the other type of endometrial cancer uh, that is uh, less common, although more aggressive, is a type 2 endometrial cancer. This includes a clear cell or a serous histology. Uh, thankfully, these are um, less common and responsible for only about 15 to 20 percent of all the endometrial cancer cases, and these are not hormonally driven. Uh, unfortunately, these cases tend to be more aggressive, diagnosed at a more advanced stage and have a higher risk of recurrence and ultimate uh, mortality. Thank you. So this patient actually had several risk factors as you alluded to. So obesity, which does increase her risk two to five times. She was nulliparous. Um, we don't know at what age she did go through menopause, but uh, are we? is it correct that a late age of menopause would be a risk factor? I think uh, that is a uh, risk factor, um, and I think the thing to consider is, is not just uh, one thing, but a constellation of uh, factors, such as uh, the nulliparity, uh, implying that she did not have regular menses, and this may be uh, secondary to an excess of estrogen in relation to the progesterone. I think uh, the uh, obesity, with her weight being uh, nearly 250 pounds, uh, implies that uh, the endometrium has been exposed uh, to um, this uh, excess uh, estrogen for a prolonged period of time. And she also has uh, other um, uh, risk factors, uh, including uh, diabetes. diabetes and um, uh, hypertension, uh, things that not necessarily are causative of endometrial cancer, uh, but I think uh, are a byproduct of uh, being obese enough long enough uh, that you ultimately develop these comorbidities. And so this constellation of findings, I think, definitely uh, raises our suspicion for a endometrial uh, process, specifically endometrial hyperplasia or cancer. Got it. 
So then, so now we have this patient. She's postmenopausal. She's had abnormal bleeding on several occasions. She has risk factors for endometrial cancer. What would we do next for her then? Well, I think we've already taken the most important step, and that's a history and physical uh, to try and uh, uh, narrow down our differential diagnosis. I think the next step would be uh, to get a uh, pathological or a tissue diagnosis, and this can be accomplished uh, in one of two ways. If the patient is able to tolerate an exam and an endometrial biopsy in the office, that would be preferred as it is uh, the least invasive. If the patient is uh, unable to uh, tolerate an exam in the office secondary to either body habitus or patient discomfort or anxiety. Uh, she may be a candidate uh, for a dilation and curettage, uh, where the cervical os is dilated and a, a curette is uh, passed through the cervical os into the endometrium and tissue is extracted in order to um, get a uh, biopsy of the endometrium uh, that is sent to pathology uh, for them to uh, categorize as uh, hyperplasia or cancer if those were to exist. What about the role of the pelvic ultrasound in a patient such as this? That's a good question. Uh, with the pelvic ultrasound, um, we have data looking at patients that are postmenopausal that have bleeding. And looking at uh, that uh, subset of uh, patients uh, who present as such, we know that if they have a thin endometrium, less than five millimeters, that they are unlikely to have a endometrial process. Um, in a patient uh, who has uh, the risk factors that we've described as far as obesity goes, uh, you are worried about a, a stimulation of the endometrium with that estrogen and thus more likely to have a thickened uh, endometrial stripe. Uh, thus, uh, that results in two steps to diagnosing this patient, the ultrasound and then with that uh, endometrial stripe being greater than five millimeters, a subsequent biopsy. The thing that the endometrial uh, ultrasound uh, or endometrial stripe uh, can miss, however, is that uh, subset of patients uh, with a type 2 tumor where we talked about uh, that not being as hormonally uh, sensitive or hormonally driven. Therefore, they may have a thin endometrial stripe in this uh, older population but still have an endometrial process uh, such as a type 2 cancer. So what would you do then if in this postmenopausal patient you actually did an ultrasound and the lining was less than 5 millimeters, but she continued to have bleeding? I think any time you have a uh, persistence of your postmenopausal uh, vaginal bleeding, that needs to be addressed. I think the one-time ultrasound uh, does not uh, absolve the clinician of doing a further workup to try and determine the etiology. Okay. So for our lady, she fortunately was able to tolerate an office exam and did have an individual biopsy performed by you in the office. But unfortunately, that result revealed that she did have endometrial adenocarcinoma. What would you do for this patient? That's a great question. I think for this patient that is now postmenopausal, that has bleeding, that has a biopsy-confirmed endometrial cancer, the recommended therapy would be a hysterectomy. In this patient, uh, she would also undergo a bilateral salpingo oophorectomy or removal of the tubes and ovaries. Depending on the stage uh, as determined by an interoperative assessment of the um, uterus and uh, the uh, clinical suspicion, uh, she may warrant a evaluation of the lymph nodes, whether that be a, a complete lymphadenectomy or whether that may be a, a sentinel lymph node biopsy. So with the uh, removal of the uterus, tubes, ovaries, and lymph nodes, 
that would uh, allow us to assign the patient a stage um, determining where the tumor started, if it was invasive into the myometrium or muscle of the uterus, or if it extended to other adjacent structures such as uh, the cervix or the uterine serosa or the adnexa or the lymph nodes. Based on the stage, she may be a candidate uh, for um, either adjuvant therapy or no adjuvant therapy. Patients with a low-grade early-stage endometrial cancer most often will be cured with a hysterectomy alone and do not require any adjuvant therapy. Those patients with a high-risk cell type such as clear cell or um, serous carcinoma or who have advanced-stage uh, disease either extending to the adnexa, uh, lymph nodes, or cervix may be candidates for adjuvant or additional therapy in the form of uh, radiation and or chemotherapy. Thank you so much, Dr. Kesselson, for that very comprehensive review. I do just have one more question. Um, what about patients that are younger, that are, you know, unfortunate enough to have maybe a type 2 that was diagnosed um, in their fertility years? Is there any possibility that they could have preservation of their fertility so that they may be able to have children in the future? That's a good question, Dr. Wright, uh, because there are a subset of patients who will be diagnosed with endometrial cancer at a younger age, and they may desire uterine preservation so that they can ultimately uh, have uh, their fertility intact. Uh, while we just talked about the standard of care being a hysterectomy for a diagnosis of endometrial cancer, obviously uh, those patients uh, may not uh, uh, desire a removal of their uterus if they uh, would like to uh, maintain their child-bearing ability. So, for patients that are diagnosed at a young age, I explained to them that the standard of care would be removal of the uh, uterus or a hysterectomy. Uh, however, there are conservative uh, approaches that we can uh, pursue. However, there are certain requirements in order to pursue uh, conservative management. Uh, some of those include uh, diagnosis on a dilation and curatage rather than an endometrial biopsy, as that is more correlative with the final hysterectomy specimen in prior studies. Uh, the patient has to have a grade one tumor. I also like to ensure that the patient does not have a genetic predisposition uh, that is causing her endometrial cancer, like a Lynch syndrome, as that may not be as hormonally responsive. The patient should be able to tolerate progesterone therapy and the patient should have no evidence of extra uterine uh, spread or deep myometrial invasion, and this can be assessed uh, based on an MRI uh, performed prior to undergoing therapy. Uh, the choice of that uh, uh, progesterone is uh, varied, um, with the goal being to uh, mitigate uh, the adverse effects of the excess estrogen. That uh, progesterone therapy can be in the form of a pill and or uh, Mirena um, progesterone-releasing intrauterine device. Got it. So, you know, this patient was unlucky in that her diagnosis was adenocarcinoma, but what if we had done a biopsy um, and it actually showed hyperplasia? Right. So when we think about hyperplasia, I think we think about uh, several different types of hyperplasia. And uh, one of the things that uh, will um, help us define her level of risk of that hyperplasia uh, progressing uh, to uh, higher grade and or to endometrial cancer is looking at the actual cells. So one of the things that we assess is the atypia, which describes the uh, actual cells in that hyperplasia. So what we previously described as uh, complex hyperplasia with atypia was a description of uh, the architecture of the cells on the slide, 
as well as uh, of the individual cells themselves. And we know that those patients with complex atypical hyperplasia have a risk of progression to endometrial cancer. We also know that about 40% of those patients will have a coexistent endometrial cancer at the time of hysterectomy. Dr. Kesselson, it has been such a treat to have you here today to chat with you about endometrial hyperplasia and carcinoma. We hope to have you back again. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you.